a word from our sponsor. I'm Rusty Keeley. I'm the CEO of the Keeley Companies. My dad, Larry Keeley, started the business, and we're really able to take his entrepreneurial spirit, his commitment to family, and we're able to take that platform and grow it. We didn't lose customers. We just kept adding to customers because we did quality work and we took care of our people. When somebody takes something and makes a success, oh, something you started, it's uh, very special. Our people are special because of, of how much they care about what it is that they do. I've been here for 23 years, uh, started in 96 with a shovel in my hand. We have some of the most incredible people around. Innovators, we have thinkers. You know, we just have people that are passionate about life. The people that make up Keeley are everything good. The people first culture that has led to their amazing success and growth is exactly why we are honored to have them as our partners. Learn more about our partners and friends at their website. It is at KeeleyCompanies.com. One more time, KeeleyCompanies.com. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Earlier this week, Seth Godin joined the show via live stream on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. It was an awesome honor to welcome someone that I have long admired, but also to do so in real time with our Live Inspired community. Well, I love sharing the podcast with you each week, and I enjoy seeing the likes and the comments and reading your questions after the program. There's something about sharing it in real time and then instantly sharing your questions, your feedback with Seth Godin that totally fired me up. You, right now, are part of a community of more than 200,000 strong, and you come together week after week to change the world, starting with your own. And every week, I have the honor and the opportunity of looking forward to welcoming each of you back sharing meaningful conversations with world-renowned leaders, innovative business minds, and unbelievable stories of everyday heroes. Today, I shared the live stream with Seth Godin. For those of you who know the name Seth Godin, he needs absolutely no introduction, so I'll keep it short. For those of you who have not yet bumped into the name Seth Godin or the work he does, here's a short introduction. He is a 20-time best-selling author. Those books, by the way, are not only published and produced here in the United States, they've been translated into more than three dozen languages. He is a world-class, massively in-demand speaker. He's an incredible thought leader. He's a profoundly successful business mind. The reason that I was looking forward to sharing this message with you the reason I've been looking forward to bringing Seth into your life, though, is not because of what he's done professionally. It's how all of the work he's done professionally can elevate the way we show up. Yes, at work. Great. But also personally, in our relationships, doing things that matter to change the world for good. Let me say that again, because you don't need to be a 20-time best-selling author to change the world for good. You don't need huge audiences at your keynote events to change the world for good. You don't need to run a huge business and then sell it to Silicon Valley like South has done to change the world for good. Ultimately, what allows us to change the world for good is one relationship at a time that we invest in and seek to make better because we were part of it. 
You're going to love this conversation. Seth is going to share some brilliant insight and poses some thought-provoking questions on success, on failure, and on reasons to believe that the best remains ahead. Before we jump in, I want you to listen for a few moments of our conversation that resonated with me. Determine when to say yes to some things and when to say no to other things. That's key. You're going to hear that coming up later on. And then also we're going to have a little bit of a conversation on what the difference is between a hero and a mentor and which one actually is more influential in our lives going forward. You might be surprised by Seth's take on that one. Stay informed, by the way, my friends, on upcoming live stream events and also other exciting news from the Live Inspired podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, etc. Or why not just do this? Text podcast 2021 to this number 314-207-5010. Let me give that to you one more time. Please text podcast 2021 to this number 314-207-5010. O'Leary, you're giving us a ton of information. I know some of you are thinking that right now. So let me give you just one site to get all the links to best serve you at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, my friends, I get to now introduce you to a guy that I have read and researched and enjoyed, and I know you will too. So buckle up, get ready for the ride with my friend and now yours. His name is Seth Godin. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, Joe Buck. Thank you for the introduction and my friends who are tuning in today, 10 o'clock Central, 11 o'clock East Coast, whatever time it is where you are tuning in from anywhere around the world. My name is John O'Leary and you are in for a treat in our podcast, in our video stream today. I've had the pleasure of interviewing some 365 guests on our Live Inspired podcast. And I'll be honest with you, Sometimes I'm really scratching my head wondering what questions might I ask. They may not have a book out. They may have been never on a podcast before. They may not be well-known commodities. Other times they have so many resources out there, so many interviews out there, so many TED Talks out there that I'm not sure where to begin. That's going to be the opportunity with our guest today. His name is Seth Godin. You may have heard of him because he has 20 international best-selling books out there. You may have heard of him because he's been writing a fairly successful blog for quite a while now. He's got almost 8,000 blog entries. He's one of the most remarkable human beings, thought leaders, and inspirations of our time. And as I was telling him before we started streaming here today, he has profoundly changed the arc of our organization. So if you are following me today, if you've heard me speak, if you've read my books, if you've been to one of our seminars, you've experienced that because of Seth Godin. So um, Seth talks a little bit in some of his writing about the difference between mentors and heroes. Seth is not a mentor of mine, but he is a hero of mine. And I think today, as you step into this podcast with us, 
He's going to be a hero of yours as you step out of it in about 40 minutes. So my friends, without further ado, grab your Live Inspired journals, get ready to buckle up, take some notes. And if you have not yet, share this podcast, share your live stream. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them on the front side of my friend and now yours. His name is Seth Godin. Seth, brother, friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. I loved hearing uh, Joe's intro, by the way. I just have to start by saying I'm not extraordinary. I'm as ordinary as everybody else. And I think part of the myth that holds us back is thinking that some people have somehow been touched by, you know, the noodley appendage and other people haven't. These are all choices. And yeah, I've had privilege and enormous advantages, but I'm not an extraordinary. How do you stay humble? And I'm being, I'm being serious. This is not at all where I was expecting to begin. But when you are introduced by some of the, the folks who've had you on, the, on your shows, on their shows, brag sheet after brag sheet after brag sheet, bowl after bullet of all the things that Seth Godin has accomplished. What keeps you humble as you journey forward in life? Well, you know, if I was a plumber, the list of uh, faucets that I had fixed and houses that I had saved from flooding would be really, really long. It's just don't, no one keeps track of that. I just happened to pick something right when the internet was coming along that enabled me to do work that's not trivial, but work that I'm proud of. And it ends up on some checklist sheet. But tomorrow I got to start over again. And now I get the benefit of the doubt. And to waste the benefit of the doubt to waste our, our shot, our privilege, our chance, what, I, I couldn't live with that. And so uh, I don't think of myself as humble particularly, I just think of myself as somebody who worked hard to get a chance to help people do this work and I'll keep doing it as long as it works. Well, it's been working so far, it's been working for quite a while and we could spend a lot of time talking about your most recent work but I want to learn a little bit more about where it came from, the, the the genesis, the origin story. I know you grew up in New York. I believe you grew up on the outskirts of Buffalo. W would you take us back to your childhood and just describe for us some of the formative experiences that uh, that began the journey of Seth, of Seth Godin? You know, it's interesting when uh, we think about what makes something formative. Two people can have exactly the same experience and 20 years later, they're talking about it and one of them doesn't even remember that that experience happened. Right. My sisters regularly say, we grew up in the same house you're describing all the time and it, we don't remember it that way. And so I think, you know, some people have had really profound brushes with tragedy or opportunity and, you know, the, the grit that you have brought to your life is stunning. Um, other people have had something that's closer to the center of the normal distribution. I'm one of those people. I won the parent lottery, grew up in a really uh, loving home where people challenged me regularly to contribute, that it was normal for strangers to come to our house for dinner because they didn't have any place to go. It was normal that my dad was the volunteer head of the United Way and that my mom helped run the nonprofit art museum. That was just the way it was supposed to be. and. Um, so we weren't rich by most standards, but we were certainly well off enough that we didn't have to worry about where dinner was going to come from. Right. But mostly we were in a community with expectations and the benefit of the doubt keeps coming back over and over again when I think about the formative events of my life. And sure, there were significant speed bumps. You know, I can recite line by line 
what the college rejection letter from my first choice college said. Um, but it's only formative if I decide to dwell on it. Mm. And so what I've decided to do is the more I dwell on the other parts, the better my life gets. I used to carry around a small list of grievances in my head, and I'm just trying to let them go one by one because it's not helpful. So I'm not going to let you graduate college quite yet into the story. We're going to spend a little bit more time growing up. I know one of the, you learned the clarinet. You spent eight years. I'm not sure you ever could play C just perfectly, but you did spend some time learning the clarinet. You also spent some time on the ace. You played a little hockey growing up. Seth Godin, what did you learn from hockey as a child? Um, I, I don't want to disrupt your rhythm too much, but all, this kind of questioning really makes me uncomfortable. Tell me more. You can't. No one can replicate the things that are on my biography, and the things that are on my biography aren't even the things that made me who I am. So I have stories that I tell about hockey, but I tell them because they're easy to tell, not because hockey is the point. Right? I broke my nose. I broke my arm. Uh, I was terrible at it, the worst uh, person when it came to uh, getting checked and physical contact. And then the day that my dad said, why don't you become a coach instead? My mm -hmm. whole life changed for the better. Suddenly, I even had a slap shot because I wasn't worried about somebody knocking me down. And, um, you know, the team that I coached, unfortunately, was undefeated the first year. And I say unfortunately because the kids learned less than if they had been keeping score of other, something other than winning. And when I coached soccer years and years later, six-year-olds, yeah. I was asked never to coach again because our team lost every single game, proud of it. And the kids played more, learned more, engaged more. And the parents said, yeah, but we'd rather have our kids win. I was like, oh, you don't want me to coach? And I got to tell you, I'm not sure I want to coach either, not in this league. You're talking now about winning and losing and tracking the things that matter and the things that don't. As a father, as a parent, as a teacher, how do you decide what things are worthy of being tracked and what things are worthy of being relatively ignored? This is a great question. If it's easy to measure and it's easy to game, then it is not a useful measure because any measure that is easy to game ceases to be a measure of what you were originally measuring and instead becomes a measure of who's good at gaming it. So the number of people who are following you on Twitter or Facebook is irrelevant. Number two, if the measure of profits leads to a profit for someone else more than it leads to a profit for you, you're working for them and the measure, not the other way around. And so we are surrounded by lots of things that the system puts in front of us, like the system says, if you get an A, you're a good person. Mm -hmm. Well, all the stuff you do to get an A makes it easier for them to manage the school. And so maybe you should say, well, it's much harder to measure how much I learned. But if I get straight Bs and learn more than the person who gets straight A's, I'll probably come out ahead. So Seth, a lot of our listeners, viewers, and friends who are paying attention to our conversation today are parents or grandparents or teachers. How do we play a game different than the game that everybody else seems to be playing these days where we have our kids in select sport and we are tracking the way toward success and we have our kids getting the tutor tutorship after school each day because we're trying to get into the right school which will allow them to get the right job how do we begin having a different conversation on what 
real success looks like in this new economy? So I have a whole rant about this called Stop Stealing Dreams, which you can read online. It's a book I gave away for free. Four million people have read it so far. And there's a TED Talk to go with it. And in it, I asked two simple questions, which every parent should ask and almost no parents do. Uh, well, one question with two answers. What is school for? Have you asked the school board, the principal, the teacher, today, what's it for? What are you seeking to accomplish? The soccer coach in our local great uh, public high school decided that the school had a shortage of soccer trophies. He decided that his job was to win soccer trophies. This is absurd. The purpose of a soccer team in a suburban New York State high school is not to win the tournament. The purpose is to teach kids resilience, teamwork, yeah. effort, right? And but when you say to the kid who's uh, second string, yeah, you got to show up at all the practices and, and you know, set the game up and stuff, but we're ahead by four goals and there's four minutes left to go and you still can't go in and play. Well, then what's the lesson exactly? Is the lesson that some sort of natural born talent at soccer is what we should be keeping track of? Because what we tend to do is reward people who have a small head start Right. And then they come to believe that talent matters. Talent doesn't matter in almost every endeavor that adults engage in. Skill matters and attitude matters and possibility and resilience and grit. Talent? Unless you're playing basketball, and you're seven feet tall, which is a talent. There are very few areas of our lives where being a productive member of society is based on who you were when you were six weeks old. Fair enough. And so that you remind me, I had a coach in fifth grade. This is right after I got out of the hospital. He coached his players to recognize what real success looked like. So when I first came home and first returned to the soccer field, very athletic, bent over, missed my, my fingers on both hands, bandages on my entire body. It was always John O'Leary that Coach Steiner put in to take the PK. And it was not because I was most likely to put the ball in the back of the net. He was trying to instill in every single player on both sides of the field what real success, real victory looked like. Yep. And I, I think that is something we don't see quite enough from our coaches these days and certainly not enough on the fields these days. What, what is your thought generally around that? So let's look back at 100 years of industrial capitalism. And industrial capitalism got us most of the shiny objects in the world. I'm not decrying it, even though it left quite a scar on our planet. But industrial capitalism is based on a hierarchy and an org chart and organizations and testing and this fake meritocracy thing, because it's the only way to make factories work at the scale that they were working. But industrial capitalism is fading away really fast, because when you can find anybody in the world to hire, not just someone in town, then you're going to hire them for different reasons in a different way. And when we pay the football coach at a university more than we pay any of the professors at the university, we're sending a really clear message about how we value this sort of scarcity-based winning. But the future belongs to network effects, public goods, things that work better when lots of people use them. And that's not the same as a scarcity mindset of, I have this and you don't. And so as a parent, We've got to take a deep breath or as an employer and say, am I 
embracing the tragedy of the commons and going back to a hundred year old model of I've got it and you don't, or do I realize that there's an additive effect mm. when you add the magic of connection that creates value where there wasn't any before? So if you look at Wikipedia, Wikipedia is a treasure. It's worth right. billions and billions of dollars, but you can't buy it. And it's created by 5,000 volunteers whose lives get better by doing that work. And I, for one, am glad that it's not Wikipedia Incorporated, but it instead is the work of a community that enables possibility to happen. Mm. So let's stay on that topic for a moment, this idea of, of scarcity and, uh, and pursuing the world's version of success, which I think many of us, myself included, are sometimes guilty of. When I first started speaking, Seth, I was told by a coach that what I should do is write a book. All great speakers, she reminded me, have books out there. And so I wrote a book. And then I sent it off to 13 publishing companies like I was trained to do. And eventually I received 13 letters back saying, no, thank you. No, thank you whatsoever. So for 11 years, I put that project behind me. You received not 13, no, thank you letters. You received far more than that. So I'm curious, number one, would you share with us how many letters you received? And then secondly, why you kept sending them out? Okay. So a couple of things to understand. Spamming people who don't want to hear from you is <laughs> immoral. It shouldn't be done. It's a stealing of attention. The book business has a problem. The book business's problem is they don't know what to publish next. And there are people whose job it is to get book submissions. That's not spam. That's engaging in the marketplace in the way it's supposed to. So with that said, uh, I decided when I left the software company uh, that I was at when I was 26 to get married and move to New York that I was gonna become a book packager. And what book packagers do is invent books and usually books that are too complicated to be built by one person. Things like almanacs, things like mm -hmm. test prep books. And uh, I had a friend in the book packaging business who promised to help me before I quit my job. And when I quit my job, he never returned any of my calls. So I was on my own, hanging out of the boat, trying to figure it out. And uh, Chip Conley, who went on to become a best-selling author and I, at the age of 26, pitched one book publisher, Warner Books, where I knew one person, and we sold the book the first day. We got $5,000 for it. He got 2,500, I got 2,500. I said, all right, well, if I can do this every three weeks, I can make a living at this. And so I started coming up with ideas that I thought publishers would want to publish. And I created 20, 30, 40 page documents to describe the idea with spreadsheets and proof about why they would work. And I got 800 rejection letters in a row over the next year. 800 times <laughs> an editor bought a stamp, wrote a letter with a typewriter, mailed it to me and said, we don't like you. And of course, they didn't say we don't like you. They said, we don't like this idea. And what I learned over the course of that year is that you can't read too much into a rejection letter because... People aren't good at describing why they're saying no, because they're afraid that if they if you answered their objection, then they'd have to say yes. Mm. But not only was I learning to make better proposals, the editors were learning to trust me. The editors I was talking to, there were about 30 of them, came to write longer notes back. They started giving me insight about the path of what they needed, not just what I wanted. So the first book that I proposed was called How to Hypnotize Your Friends and Get Them to Act Like Chickens. 
and it was the very first book ever written about stage hypnosis. And as far as I know, there's still no popular book about stage hypnosis. So I was going to find a bunch of hypnotists, give away their secrets. Like you could imagine in the internet of today, something like that would be popular. No editor wanted to put his or her name on it. And that's what I learned is that these folks dramatically underpaid, way overeducated, wanted to publish books they were proud of, right. not books that would make money. And as I talked to them and engaged with them, the process of selling is not how do you berate people into saying yes. The process of selling is how do you gain empathy for who they are and what they want so you can bring them something they can't wait to buy. Mm. And it was a year later that I sold a book on spot and stain removal for $5,000, my magic number. And um, then I got the joke. And a year after that, I met a guy named John Boswell who uh, taught me three or four of his secrets and gave me a level of confidence to say, I see how this industry works now. The same way you have figured out how public speaking works, right? That lots of people who wanna be a public speaker have something to say. Some of them are even funny, but you have figured out what the people who book public speakers want at the same time you've figured out how to please the audience. And that's why you're in demand. One thing that surprises people who are in demand is that frequently those people who are in demand also have limiting beliefs and they also wonder if they are loved, if they are liked, if they're appreciated and if they'll be in demand tomorrow. That's true for every human being that I've ever had a personal relationship in life that we all wonder, do we belong? Do we belong? Seth, you get your third and fifth and eighth and then 11th and 17th and 20th and 300th and 400th and 36th. And at some point, don't you scratch your head and say, my gosh, I'm just not capable. I just don't belong here. I've had lots of those moments, but not in that period of time. In, <laughs> tell that, me, period, tell me about in, that. That, in that period of time, I knew that if I gave up, I'd have to go get a job at a bank. I, was, I had an MBA from Stanford. I could get a job at a bank in five minutes. I was making no money. I was trying to support my family. I knew I could do it, get a job at a bank. And getting a job at the bank would have been the end. It would have, I would have just started to die inside. So for me, it was like, you know, watching some movie where, you know, uh, Bruce Willis is up against the wall. All I could do was say, what don't I know that they know? Mm. How can I pursue this with a spirit of inquiry? And that's totally different than the situations where the imposter syndrome shows up and you realize not only do you feel like a fraud, not only are you a fraud, but there's no path forward for you. And in those cases, and I've danced with those many times, the right answer is, okay, I'm stopping. And there, you know, I used to, excuse me, I used to play the clarinet. I stopped because I was never going to be able to put in the time to put in the care to get to the other side. And that's why I wrote the book, The Dip, because The Dip is about quitting the right stuff. And you know, your story is all about the fact that you could have quit that night when Jack Buck showed up and you could have quit 10 years later. You could have quit 10 years after that and no one would have blamed you. And I'm glad you got through that dip to the other mm-hmm. side. But there are lots of things. I don't know if you took ballet lessons when you were six, but I'm glad you quit because you'd be a lousy ballerina. Right. So, no idea. 
you know, you, you just got to figure out, is there a dip in front of me? Has anyone ever gotten through this? So I saw Byron Price and I saw John Boswell and I saw Michael Cater and I saw the guys from Stone Song and I said, they were where I was and now they're on the other side. There is a dip between here and there. I just got to figure out where it is. And if I can keep eating macaroni and cheese long enough, I'll get there. When did your writing shift from trying to get a book deal, from trying to get $5,000 for the next manuscript into creating work that you knew the world needed to become better versions of itself going forward? So I left a lot of money on the table as a book packager because I was never willing to do books I wasn't proud of. The one, the closest I ever came was email addresses of the rich and famous, which was a directory. <laughs> Would have been a bestseller, man. A directory of people's email addresses. And if you skipped the introduction in which I decried spam, I think I might've been the first person in a book to ever decry spam. Um, if you just skipped that and started spamming all the emails in the, in the book, it was a problem. Um, but you know, I did a series of, of novels with Walter Dean Myers. Uh, Walter was the most celebrated uh, author of uh, books for black kids. He won the Coretta Scott King Award more than anybody else. I tracked him down. I told him the work I wanted to do. I agreed to pay him to put his name on the cover. He read everything to make sure it was okay, but he didn't have to do any work. And I brought this series to the world, like Sweet Valley High, like the Babysitter's Club, right? I knew how to make a, a series of books that would sell more copies than this, but I wanted to do a book that I, a series of books that I could point to and say, these. Mm -hmm. I did a book called Wisdom Inc. Uh, I did a, the Mother Daughter Book Club. These were books because the book industry isn't a profit seeking missile. These were books that I could bring to an editor and together we would say, yeah, it's not gonna be a bestseller. You're not gonna pay that much and we'll both be proud we did it. And that path is harder to find when you're dealing with people who have been brainwashed into that Milton Friedman profit at all costs mindset. And, and I think it's important that we support people around us who are doing work they care about that matters to other people. And those two pieces together have to be in place. You're not just allowed to do work you care about. And it's not okay to do work you're ashamed of just because other people want to buy it. Mm. So let's talk about some of the work you do care about, some of the books that you've written, some of the quotes from those books. I'll be sharing those in a moment. But I do want to remind our friends tuning in right now that they're listening to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. And our guest today is Seth Godin himself. He's joined us, which is awesome. If you have questions for Seth Godin, do me a favor, type them in now and near the end of our program, we'll get around to asking those. So please do raise your hand, participate. Don't just tune in passively, but lean forward. You'll get a lot more out of this podcast and anything else that you touch throughout the day. So Seth, you know, the hardest part of my planning for this podcast was what should I talk about with Seth? Because there's so much, there's so much. So I pulled out seven of my favorite quotes and they begin with this. Uh, you hinted at it earlier, but we're going to go a little bit deeper into it now. Attitudes are skills. Not a whole lot of people think that, but you say attitudes are skills. Tell me why you say that. Yeah, I stole this straight up from Zig Ziglar. Um, and he gave me his blessing because this is, I think, the most important part of his work. Let's dissect it just a little bit. Uh, can you learn to juggle? Can you learn to balance on one foot? Can you learn Esperanto? Can you learn uh, to, uh, you know, uh, whistle? 
The answer is probably, yeah. if you put a lot of effort into it. These are things that are easy to call skills. Okay, um, can you learn to be a little bit more trusting? Can you learn to be a little bit more optimistic? Can you learn to help other people solve their problem? I hope you can say yes. Well, if the answer is yes, then they're skills. Yeah. And that's such a, it cracks everything wide open. Because if you can become the kind of person that we want to hire, that we want to work with, that we want to have as our boss, that we want to have as our employee, that we want to trust, that's fantastic. Because if it's hardwired into us, you're doomed. No, it's something you can learn. And that reinforces all the work I've been trying to do for years. And it also fuels my day. So I'm taking you through seven quotes that are yours. I thought though, instead, as I was planning this out, maybe instead I should bring up seven quotes that I bet will really bother Seth Godin. One of them was going to be, is it going to be on the test? <laughs> Another was going to be, oh, I've always been this way. And so when I think about attitudes being skills, I think a lot of folks just view generosity as well. I've, I've always been, I've always been selfish. It's just how I show up. I've always been shy, Seth. It's who I am. But your statement there challenges that to say, you know what, actually it's a skill and a skill you can improve. Yeah. And will this be on the test? We'll put a, a pin in that because I want to come back to it. But the, you know, the thing is, a lot of the folks who the outside world thinks of as charismatic, garrulous, you know, fast talking public speakers, they're some of the shyest people I know. Yeah. And backstage, they just deflate like the Macy's parade balloon. And then they say five minutes, you just walk in and go, because it's work, right? And I, I think that shyness, it might be hardwired into us at some level, but I also know that there are lots of ways uh, to help and to lead without being a fast talking internet person. Perfect. Second quote that I wrote down for today is instead of wondering when your next vacation is, Seth Godin, maybe we should set up a life we don't need to escape from. Right. So this gets back to industrial capitalism. You know, I don't think many people wanted to work in the factories of Manchester for 12 and a half hours a day surrounded by coal dust or to dig in a mine. Yeah. We needed to create this idea that you went to work and then you escaped. And as we added more and more hours to the day, particularly folks who are lucky enough to be given the opportunity to be knowledge workers, we started crafting a different kind of work. And the thing is, uh, you know, I've met people, street sweepers, who be have, because of really limited opportunity, that's the best job they can get. Right. But they've decided to be great at it. And, you know, the Reverend King had that as one of his quotes. The thing is, that's not fair. That's not just. But if we are in a place and we're going to be in that place, the question is, will we choose to organize our approach to that, wherever it is, to be one of this is something I can dance with, not something I have to suffer through? Hmm. Probably six times a year, I listened to the Reverend King's speech that he gave to a Philadelphia junior high where he delivered that quote about street sweepers. And if you're going to do it, do it well. And what strikes me most about his quote is not how he says it, although it's said beautifully, perfectly. It's the response to it by the students. They, they cheer. And I, I think we've lost a little bit of that cheering for doing work well. 
not only as children, but even as adults. You know, it's not it's not part of my list of quotes to ask you about. Yeah, but well, but part of the reason is because we've been stolen from and abused and misled and ripped off and put into debt um, by people who think erroneously that their job is to take as much as possible from the workers. And it's not, but that has become, you know, a narrative for the last 30 years. Hmm. And so it's the difference of between have to and get to. And the problem is that if you have the wrong boss and you approach work as this is something I get to do, that wrong boss is going to take advantage of you. Yes. And that's part of why the internet offers this opportunity for someone who leans into these skills to build a body of work outside of work, to build a body of work that you can point to as a contributor, because then a good boss is going to see what you've done and realize that they have a place for you. So I'm going to skip ahead a couple of quotes to a, one that I borrowed from Poke the Box, but it goes like this. I, it's brilliant. I define anxiety as experiencing failure in advance. I define anxiety, which we all have, if we're honest, as experiencing failure in advance. Yeah. So first, full disclaimer, there are people who have a medical level of anxiety that I am not talking to right now. Sure. And I have nothing but compassion for those people. But I have anxiety. You have anxiety. The, the anxiety with a small a is something that is part of the human condition. And it is different than how we deal with the world is a problem right this minute, right? So if you're having a wedding outdoors and it's pouring rain during the wedding, you don't have anxiety. You just have to deal with the fact that it's raining. Right. The anxiety came the day before where you're thinking it might rain tomorrow. You are experiencing the problem before the problem even arrives. And so the opportunity is to say, well, is it helping? Is it going to make it likely that I'm going to book a tent? Because if I'm not going to book a tent, then experiencing failure in advance is just a distraction. Mm. It is a way to keep me from the work. And when it shows up, the mistake is to stick your tongue in that spot where your tooth used to be over and over and over and over and over again, because the tooth's not coming back. <laughs> Instead, figure out what generous thing you can do to distract you from the fact that you're sticking your tooth with your tongue all the time. So there were seven quotes that I wanted to ask you specifically about. I'm going to skip to the seventh one, though, and then okay. let some of the listeners and viewers and followers ask a couple Sorry, questions. I've been prattling on and on. No, man. I I, I'm sitting here Indian style right now. So just keep my, my, my shoes are off. Continue on Seth Godin. But let's talk about quote number seven that I penned in for today. How dare you settle for less when the world has made it so easy for you to be remarkable? Okay, so lots of things to decode. So what does <laughs> settling even mean? What does remarkable even mean? Yes. Remarkable means worth making a remark about. It's that simple. So the way that organizations grow, the way that reputations are built, the way that you build a following, the way that you make a sale, is because someone else talked about what you did. And before we went on air, uh, you were talking about your work. And I've been asked about what I want to have as a legacy. And my, I want to be measured by what people I taught taught other people. Because I'm not trying to make a closed system here. I'm trying to make an open system. And this idea of being remarkable is simply, why would someone talk about you? They're not going to talk about you because they care about you. They don't. 
They care about themselves. So they will talk about you because their story about you makes them feel better. And so there are lots of areas in my life where I quote settle because it's fine, right? Like if email gets there in 30 seconds versus 26 seconds, I don't care because <laughs> it's not important. But on the things that we have chosen to measure, why not lean in that last bit after we've put in so much, after our ancestors have put in so much, why not lean in just that one little bit to expose yourself to fear and anxiety, to expose yourself to something that feels like risk in service of making a difference. Mm. So good and so needed during these days that we're living in and leading through. So Seth, there are a couple, well, there are numerous questions coming in from the community. I'm just gonna put two of them up on the screen. We'll do this in sequence. Start with number one, this one coming from Abby Richter. What is in quotes, the work of yours that you are most proud of right now, Seth Godin? There are things that I have invented that on a global scale have touched a lot of people, but I don't really focus on those. And there are entities that I've built that had decent P&Ls, but I don't really focus on those. When you ask this question, Abby, and, and thank you, Amy, for the great producing work in the background. When you ask this question, um, I'm just thinking about one person. And it's a different person every time, but right mm -hmm. now we have one person and I watched something shift inside. And I was present for it. I didn't do the shift, but I might have helped create the conditions where she was able to shift. And I've been able to do that for leaders of nonprofits, and I've been able to do that for nine-year-olds. And uh, that's a good day for me, to be able to show up with the right conditions for someone else to change, because I've never changed anyone in my whole life. You know, you, you wrote, I've been following your blog for more than a decade. So as long as I've been trying to grow myself as a leader, Seth has been part of my morning ritual. One of the posts you wrote that I disagreed with until I read it the 13th time and then it started to make sense was the difference between mentors and heroes and which one actually matters more. And I had always viewed people in my life as being mentors of mine. You, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, Jack Buck, showing up on day one of my hospitalization and then for the next 25 years of my life afterwards. I'd always viewed him as a mentor, but he wasn't. He's actually a hero. And he put on the cape and he flew and he showed up and then he took off and a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later, or a year or two later, he showed back up again and I was able to watch from afar a hero do great work. So for our listeners, and then I'll ask one more question of, from them, but share with us the difference between heroes and mentors and why being a hero matters so much during these days. Yeah, so this weird meme started spreading about 15 years ago. You need a mentor, you need a mentor, you need yeah. a mentor. And a famous one's even better. Well, what's the deal for the mentor? It doesn't scale, right? They, what you're saying is every time I get into a jam, you'll have Yoda-like advice. And every time, you know, there's, it's asymmetrical. And as a result, people say, well, I just can't go forward because I don't have a mentor. And what the post says is heroes scale. Hmm. When you're about to trade stock, you can say, what would Warren Buffett do? Right? When you're about to make a movie, you could say, what would Spike Lee do? You can work your way through any field you want, learn what that person would do. Yeah. And they don't even have to know you exist. And I've been so lucky because I've met my heroes and worked with them. I mean, I have many heroes I haven't met, but you know, to have 
written books with Jay Levinson and to have been on stage with Zig Ziglar and uh, so many people who I'm leaving out right now. But I got to tell you, I've gotten more out of their hero status with me than their mentor status. Mm. You call somebody up and say, I'm in a jam. Well, maybe describing your problem helps you, but there's nothing that person on the other end of the phone is going to tell you that you don't already know. Not if you've done a good job of thinking clearly about where you are. So Seth Godin, one more question from our audience tuning in, and then I'm going to wrap up our time together with the Live Inspired 7. So this one from Ethan Stack. Ethan wants to know, you're clearly a well-read person. What advice do you have to prioritize being a lifelong learner? Great question. So what learning means is getting it wrong on your way to getting it right. It's not the same as being educated. Educated, you can prove by getting an A. Learning means you experience things and didn't get it right. So the way to be a lifelong learner is to prize being wrong, is to figure out if you are wrong with good intent, if you are wrong in good spirit, and then you discover a better way, you learn something today. And too often, people want to learn, but they're never willing to be wrong. And that's a difficult combination. My friend, this has been an honor. We're going to move now into the Live Inspired 7. Before I do, though, one of the things in researching you and reading you and listening to you, I've been, you know, Seth Godin and I have been hand in hand now for the last several weeks as we prepped for today. He just didn't know it. So I've had your voice dancing in my mind. And one of the cool things is I also had your partner's voice, Helene, dancing in my mind. 35 years together. And when I heard you interview together, it was as if you were still deeply in love. That, that, that's a hard thing to pull off when you're in the puppy dog stage of just really starting to get to know someone. After 35 years of knowing someone, sometimes you begin to push one another away a little bit. You begin to push away from, you know, poking the box and stepping away from that, that style of living. You seem to be drawn even closer to her and she toward you. T talk about what you've done intentionally as a couple to draw you even closer together. Yeah, I, this is not my area of expertise, and I'm not sure that my advice is going to be really helpful. Uh, looking at human behavior in particular, it's interesting to see what happens when people make a commitment and choose not to revisit it. Because if you make a commitment, like there's nobody who uh, doesn't have a future living on Earth. You can't say, well, no, I think I'm going to go to Mars. You can't <laughs> go to Mars. Earth is what you get. So what are you going to do with it? And then we, you find creative ways to make things magical. And too often in a world of one-click shopping, it's super tempting to be, oh, look at how grass is over there, grass is over there, grass is over there. So I'm really fortunate in so many ways. And how I was raised and the benefit of that I get and the magical person that I got married to. But I also believe that choosing to make a commitment makes our path forward so much easier mm -hmm. than saying, I'm going to day trade because day trading isn't a good way to make money in stocks and it's not a good way to be happy either. Brother, I wish we could drop the mic on that because that was mic drop worthy. That was really well said. We are going to wrap up though and then launch forward into our days and into our lives with what we call the Live Inspired 7. The, the very first question for a very well-written and read man is this. Seth Godin, what is the most influential or impactful book that you have ever read? Yeah. I think the best 
most important book that anyone will ever read is the book they write. Brother, you've written hundreds and you've written 20 that became international bestsellers. So of those 20, which one would you say, gosh, John, of those, I might pick up this one first. Uh, what to do when it's your turn. Awesome. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Laughing. Huh. Turns out that adults don't laugh nearly as much as they laughed when they were kids. Why do you think that is, Seth? I think it has to do with brain science. Um, it's also about sunk costs, and we could have spent a whole uh, hour talking about sunk costs. But when you've got uh, a status quo you're trying to preserve, laughter is a little bit harder because laughter is usually about surprise. Mm. And in our Western industrial economy, we've been pushed to not want surprise. And therefore, unless we're watching uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, excuse me, <laughs> then we have trouble deciding to laugh. Uh, thank you. I don't have problems laughing because uh, life if you're honest about it, provides countless opportunities to see yourself in a lens that deserves a little bit of a smile. And uh, yeah. I appreciate you teaching me that as well. So if you're home, your apartment, your condo caught fire, Helene, the boys, the pets, everybody's out. You have an opportunity to run in and grab one item that matters. What's the one thing you're gonna come racing back outside with? Yeah, so the question has changed in the last 20 years because all the pictures and all the files aren't in your house anymore. They're on the, in the cloud if you've done a decent job of backing stuff up. So um, what's irreplaceable? Because we're so lucky um, that many items that we care about are fungible. I guess I would say the uh, canoe paddle I made for my wife in 1979. Mm. Tell me more. Well, I'm a canoeing instructor. I do it every summer. This last summer would have been my 42nd. I've carved 40 uh, canoe paddles with just hand tools out of cherry wood. But this was the best one I ever made. That's awesome. If you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who do you want to be seated next to? My mom. What's the first question for mom? <sighs> I'm not sure. What's the first thing you would say to your mother? I would just talk about how much I missed her. Seth, what's the best advice mom or dad or some instructor growing up or some business colleague or Helene or the boys ever gave you? So more succinctly said, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well, this sounds flip, but it's not, which is avoid pithy advice. <laughs> Because the, you know, the shortcut TLDR Twitter friendly thing, oh, we've all gotten 10,000 of those. Has it made anything better? Really? I don't think so. I think that they insulate us from the truly hard work. You know, you want stock market advice? Here you go. Buy low, sell high. <laughs> right? There it is. Four words. That doesn't help. So... The, any advice I could give you right now isn't going to help, except the advice of stop asking for advice. So if you could whisper some encouragement or advice to your 20-year-old self, 
just about getting ready to graduate university, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? Yeah, so as we've covered, I've had lots of professional pitfalls and we didn't even talk about some of the giant ones uh, and I wouldn't trade any of them because if I had skipped any of them, I wouldn't be me and I'm glad to be me. And so what I would say to my 20 year old self is super simple, which is it's gonna be okay. That's it. Whatever you define, whatever's happening, if you define that as okay, mm. it's gonna be okay. So there you go. One of the comments that I saw online as you were speaking was he's so authentic and humble. And you are, you may not like that terminology of humility, but indeed you do wear that well on your sleeve and you are so authentic, Seth. It is so refreshing. And that leads us to our seventh and final question as we get ready to launch you and all of our followers and friends into their days. Question number seven for my friend, one of my heroes, his name is Seth Godin, is this. It has been said, Seth Godin, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? So I use a word that some people don't understand, but it needs to be in there. So I'll say my sentence and I'll explain what the word means. Uh, four words, he made a ruckus. And what it means to make a ruckus is to shine a light, to do generous, remarkable work, to teach people, to teach other people, to leave things better than you found them. And so I end most of my conversations with people by saying, go make a ruckus. And that's what I mean. So, Godin, thank you for making a ruckus on the Live Inspired podcast. And thank you for leaving this world and my life a little bit better than you found it. My friends, that is Seth Godin. Seth, where can we learn more about the work that you do today? Uh, if you type Seth into Google, there's my blog. Um, Seth's blog has 8,000 free posts, and you can find other stuff at sethgodin.com. That is the great, humble, and superhero Seth Godin. My name is John O'Leary, and leaders, this is your day. Embrace it and live inspired. Well, my friends, 45 minutes, it turns out, with Seth Godin fly by in the blink of an eye. I hope you enjoyed the program that we just brought to you as much as I enjoyed being part of it. I've looked up to Seth and his work for years, for years. So to bring him into our Live Inspired community family was truly an honor. It was also an honor having you along for the ride. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Seth joined us this week using live stream. We were able to broadcast this message across all of our social platforms. It was awesome seeing his face, feeling the reaction from the community, responding in real time, liking in real time, sharing in real time, and asking Seth questions in real time. It's something that we've enjoyed doing, and I think you'll see us utilizing video, live streaming, and your participation far more going forward. So be on the lookout for that. And then just two more things, my friends, as we wrap up this episode and launch you into the day ahead. The first is this. If you've enjoyed this program as much as we enjoy bringing it to you, please take a moment and share with your friends, with your family, with the ladies and gentlemen that you work with, worship with, work out with, you bumped into while you were walking down the sidewalk listening to this episode that you are following the Live Inspired podcast, and they should too. It's one cool way that we can continue the outreach to make the world a better place. Change it one life at a time. You can help us be part of that change. And the second piece, my friends, is this. 
If you would like to receive information on the video that we recorded with Seth Godin, on the work that we are doing organizationally, on how to stay in touch on future podcast guests, or how to check out the live stream in the first place, let me give you a simple place to learn more about all that. Just text us. We're here to serve you, to listen to you, to respond to your questions, and to do life together. Our number is 314-207-5010. Just text us at that number, the, the word podcast 2021. One more time, the number is 314-207-5010. And then type in the word podcast 2021. And if that's too confusing, just let your fingers do the walking over to John O'LearyInspires.com forward slash podcast. Ladies, gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. And I want to thank you for believing like I do, that the foundation is firm, the headwind, yes, indeed, it may be real, but the best days remain in front of us. And this indeed is your day. Live Inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach, we're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.